Let's begin as we usually do by reading from God's Word. So I'd like you to take your Bibles, if you would, and turn with me to the book of 3 John. 3 John, of course, that tiny book that is right before the book of Jude, which is right before the book of Revelation. So the easiest way to find 3 John, of course, is to go to Revelation and turn left just a little bit. And uh, 3 John, we're going to look at the last uh, half of this book this morning. I'm going to read the whole thing. It's very brief. Um, and today, because we're coming to this section of 3 John, we bring our series in the letters of John to an end. We started back in September, so um, we are uh, finished. We'll finish this morning with them. Uh, by my count, this means that I've led you through 24 books of the Bible. Um, there's 42 left, so I better pick up the pace um, if I'm going to finish before the death dew lies cold on my brow. So that's. Um, Good. All right, Third John, it's good to see the Holtons here this morning. We're so happy you're here. Third John, starting in verse 1, follow along. This is what the Lord Jesus says to us through John to Gaius and then to us. The elder to my dear friend Gaius, whom I love in the truth. Dear friend, I pray that you may enjoy good health and that all may go well with you, even as your soul is getting along well. It gave me great joy when some believers came and testified about your faithfulness to the truth, telling how you continue to walk in it, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Dear friend, you are faithful in what you are doing for the brothers and sisters, even though they're strangers to you. They have told the church about your love. Please send them on their way in a manner worthy that honors God. It was for the sake of the name that they went out, receiving no help from the pagans. We ought therefore to show hospitality to such people so that, they, so that we may work together for the truth. I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first, will not welcome us. So when I come, I will call attention to what he is doing, spreading malicious nonsense about us. Not satisfied with that, he even refuses to welcome other believers. He also stops those who want to do so and puts them out of the church. Dear friend, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. Anyone who does what is good is from God. Anyone who does what is evil has not seen God. Demetrius is well spoken of by everyone and even by the truth itself. We also speak well of him and you know that our testimony is true. I have much to write to you, but I do not want to do so with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon and we will talk face to face. Peace to you. The friends here send their greetings. Greet the friends there by name. I would like to think with you for a few moments this morning about the role of imitation in Christian discipleship. Uh, One of the ways that followers of Jesus grow is by imitation. I think about a conversation I had with a friend of mine. This is a number of years ago. He was very early in the morning one day reading his Bible in this kitchen table and his daughter, who was I think four at the time, came into the kitchen, saw him reading his Bible and went out, got her picture Bible and came in and sat on a chair next to him around the kitchen table and opened her picture Bible while he was reading his Bible that had less pictures in it. And uh, he, he said that that moment brought him great joy and it terrified him. 
What brought him joy about it was that his daughter had seen him reading the Bible and she wanted to read the Bible too. That's great. And then he thought to himself about uh, what the implications of this for the rest of her life. She's going to be looking to me to follow my example of how I follow Jesus. And that terrified him. Uh, I remember the joy that I had one evening, again, this is a number of years ago, when a friend of mine from Sunday school, we called them in that church, Adult Bible Fellowships, called me on the phone, I was a student at the time, called me on the phone to ask me for some pointers on prayer. He'd listened to me pray in Sunday school, and he wanted to know uh, how he could get better at it. He was interested in any pointers I had to it. That was a high compliment that I received. Uh, ten years ago, a friend of mine was uh, preaching at a church. He was, they were starting a new service. This was over ten years ago. He was starting a new service on Monday night. So my family and I decided that we would go and encourage him and attend the service, listen to his sermon. We uh, went to church, and uh, Claire was three, I think. And I was holding her while we were singing at this church. She looked around and saw how everybody else was singing. So she copied their example and put her hand in the air just like this. And I thought, maybe she won't be as repressed as I am. That would be great. But she's our firstborn, so she's doomed. So this week I had a conversation with a member of our church, and one of, one of the things she said was, um, I, I like it that there are so many people of different ages in our church because there's people who are ahead of me that, whose example I can follow. I can learn from them. So those are all contemporary examples, but uh, this, it has been this way in the body of Christ for a long time. In fact, it's as old as the Bible, imitation is a form of Christian discipleship, because Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 11:1, 1, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Did you see imitation in 3 John as we read it? It's, it's quite bold. It's in verse 11. Look what it says. Dear friend, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. I like how John starts at dear friend. It's the fourth time and last time he uses that phrase to call to address Gaius. Verse 1, dear friend. Verse 2, dear friend. Verse 5, verse 11. Dear friend, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. And this call, of course, to imitation means you have to be discerning. Be careful who you copy. John is saying here, those who do good reveal by their actions that they're from God. Those who do evil reveal that they have no spiritual experience to speak of. They have not seen God. Now, we're going to spend a fair amount of time this morning, because that's what the text does, talking about the sort of person not to copy, uh, the one who's practicing evil. Uh, Danny Aiken wrote about this little letter. He said this little letter of Third John is about four different types of uh, Christians or four four men. There's Gaius. He's the commendable Christian. Danny Aiken likes alliteration. You'll like this. This is good. Gaius, the commendable Christian. We talked about him a couple of weeks ago. Gaius is commendable for his love. He's commendable for welcoming strangers. He's commendable for sending Christian teachers out and fully supporting them, participating with them in their ministry. Yeah. And uh, uh, so Gaius is commended for that sort of work. Uh, and then uh, John writes about here uh, Diotrephes, he calls the conceited Christian. We're going to talk about Diotrephes quite a bit. Then there's Demetrius, the consistent Christian. And finally, there's John himself, the author of this letter, the caring 
Christian. These four men. We're going to talk about diatrophies in a moment. My, my hope is I want to warn you about copying or even being this sort of a Christian. But for just a minute, I want to, I want to trace a theme that John raises in verse 11 uh, when he talks about those who practice evil have not seen God. Seeing God. It's a very important image to the Apostle John. Um, on the one hand, the image of seeing God is, is simple. This is one way that John writes about being a Christian. Christians, followers of Jesus, even those who have not, uh, were not alive in first century in Palestine to see him personally, followers of Jesus still, in a very important sense, have seen Jesus. Flip over with me to 1 John 3, 6. Or maybe it's in the note sheet, I'm not sure, whichever. I didn't have room in the note sheet to write all the verses we're going to look at. But 1 John 3, 6. Look, John just uses the phrase seeing to talk about trusting Jesus, becoming a Christian, converting. Verse 6, no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Do you remember the conversation that Jesus had with his disciples? So this is the night he was betrayed. This is the night before his crucifixion. And he was talking to them and he said to them very carefully, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then Philip, in John 14, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, show us the Father. See, Philip has this idea that he wants to see too. Show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. And Jesus said to Philip, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Seeing God is one of the images that the Bible uses to describe a Christian. It's John's attempt to clarify or to capture in this image what it means to uh, the spiritual experience of conversion. This is a way of seeing that is transformative. Why this summer are millions of Americans going to go to national parks? Why do millions of people every year go to the Grand Canyon or go to Niagara Falls? They go because they want to see. It's why when, when you go to the beach this summer, the shore... You're going to get up early and you go out and watch the sunrise. Or if that's not your jam, some of you will stay up late to watch the moon on on the the water. It it brings you peace. Seeing that it takes you out of yourself, seeing that majesty. It's transformative seeing that. Turning to Jesus is transformative. It's a transformative type of seeing. Paul helps us with this. We read a verse in 2 Corinthians 4.4 a lot. Look what it says. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Interesting, Paul's talking about a sort of seeing you do with your mind. So that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ who is the image of God. How do we see Jesus? We see Jesus in the gospel, in the preaching of the good news. In one sense, the organ of sight in the Bible is your ears. You see in the Bible with your ears... When you hear the gospel message, you see Jesus and it transforms you. Now, if we probe a little bit more with this, John's going to admit that that we don't yet see wholly or fully, but it is our great hope. Uh, Ed mentioned this when he prayed. 1 John 3, 2 says, Dear friends, now we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. There's a type of seeing now that we experience through hearing the gospel that transforms us. 
And there is a type of seeing that will be someday when we see Jesus face to face and will be like him. Oh, that's the great promise of the Bible. God has not yet given to us everything he promised. But when we see the Lord Jesus, we'll be transformed, we'll be like him, we'll receive all of the blessings that he has promised. Now, verse 11 here of 3 John is here. It's about that transformative look. Those who practice evil have not yet seen Jesus this way. And because they have not seen him, they practice evil. And John says, don't imitate those sorts of people. And on cue, he enters the stage into the spotlight steps, Diotrephes. If you're trying to think of baby names, I would take this one off your list. We don't know very much about Diotrephes. Um, We don't know where he's from. We don't know what he did for a living. We don't know how old he was when he got this letter. Uh, We don't know whether he was married or not. We don't know what sort of marriage or family background he had or religious background. But we do know that he was a leader in one of the ancient churches that John knew, uh, over which John had some sort of pastoral supervision, and Diotrephes was in rebellion. I wish I knew more about the dynamics of this letter. Um, So it's written to Gaius, and for a a great deal of time, John devotes time to describing space, to describing Diotrephes. And what's the relationship between Gaius and Diotrephes? How did they know each other? Some people suggest that, that Gaius and Diotrephes were members of the same church. But if that's true then why does John write as if he has to describe what Diotrephes is doing to Gaius, as if Gaius doesn't know anything about Diotrephes? If he's part of the same church, why, why that? Why does he write that way? That doesn't seem likely. But, but Diotrephes, well, he, he seems to be involved in a church that Gaius at least knows well. It's a church that he knows well and that he cares about. Maybe Gaius had been there once, a part of that church, and had had to move out of the area. Or maybe he had friends there. (laughs) Maybe they changed the color of the carpet in the auditorium and Gaius just said, I'm out of here, and so he wasn't attending that church anymore. Probably not. Um, The other question that I have, I I don't quite understand the relationship between these two men. The other question I have is, what bothered Diotrephes so much that he's that he's pushing back against John. What was the issue going on? Uh, there's been a lot of speculations about this. Some people said it must be theological issue. Some diatrophies disagreed with John about some theological issue. I'm not sure that's true. Um, John had people that he disagreed with theologically. We, we talked about this a lot, right, when we went through 1 John. And, and, and John doesn't call out diatrophies for any theological problems. I don't think it has to do with any sort of church authority structure going on um, as if as if Diotrephes is uh, uh, the lead pastor and he's un- unhappy with John uh, who's trying to, uh, to move in on his authority that, that, that there's a, a structure, church structural issue. It's not theological, it's not ecclesiastical in that sense. It doesn't seem to be moral. Uh, John doesn't call out Diotrephes for any great moral failing other than his arrogance, which we'll talk about in a minute. What's going on here? The problem is actually personal, isn't it? It's personal. It's Diotrephes himself. 
John Stott says that most conflicts in churches have to do with personality clashes rather than any sort of theological or moral or ecclesiastical issue. There's the presenting problem, there's this issue, but then there's always these personal issues going on underneath. I listened to uh, to a lecture this week about the last, uh, well, the, the government shutdowns of the 90s. Do you remember the Titanic figures that the government shut down to the 90s? Bill Clinton and Newt Gingrich were at it. They were battling over the budget. And during one of the battles that took place, uh, the Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin was assassinated. So President Clinton flew on Air Force One over to Israel for the funeral. And he took a lot of other leaders, a lot of American government leaders with him. Bob Dole, the uh, majority leader of the Senate, and Newt Gingrich, the Speaker of the House, was on the plane with him. They flew over to Israel in the middle of the negotiations about the budget. Newt Gingrich was so mad that he didn't receive uh, top-notch treatment or enough attention during the, f- the plane flight over that he deliberately tanked the talks, and that led to the government shutdown. He, he was mad in part because uh, you know, the president got to go down the, the flight of stairs at the front of the plane, and Newt and Bob Dole had to walk out the back of the plane. And that's just unbelievable rude, unbelievably rude, right? Newt Gingrich was so mad that he tanked the talk. He's spoken about this and about the childishness of that mistake. There's this public presenting issue and then there's personal issues going on underneath. I don't know what the public issue is, but I do know the personal issue. John puts his finger on it when he says, I wrote to the church, but Diatrophes, who loves to be first. That's a hard phrase to read. Diatrophes loves to be first. Let's line up a bunch of kindergartners and see what happens. Is there anybody there who loves to be first? Hmm. Well, we're going to unpack that phrase in a little bit. In fact, my goal is in a few minutes to show you how incompatible that is with our, our, our beliefs as followers of Jesus, this love to be first. But before that, I want to talk about what Diotrephes is doing, how this love to be first is manifesting itself. And um, I, I want to talk about what he did, and you might recognize, or what he was like, and you might recognize some of these. If you recognize these in your own life, it might be a sign that you love to be first too. So three things about Diotrephes here. Number one, notice, Diotrephes was unteachable. He was unteachable. This actually manifests itself in a couple of different ways. The text says that he will not welcome us. Diotrephes will not welcome us. So John wrote a letter. He says that in verse 9. I wrote to the church. I, I don't know what letter that is. Some people think it's 1 John. Some people think it's 2 John. More likely, it's a letter that we lost. Well, Diotrephes didn't want it. He didn't want to read it. He threw it away. It's been lost. Thanks, Diotrephes. So he wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first, will not welcome us. How can you not receive or not acknowledge the authority of an apostle? How can you do that? And John's like the last living apostle by this point in time. You'd think, you would think you wouldn't be able to get away with this. Except, well, the same thing did happen to Paul, right? So apparently you can reject the authority of an apostle. D.A. Carson says that the modern equivalent of this would be a refusal to heed the teaching of the scriptures. You should think about how you respond to the scriptures and your teachability. 
Do you look for opportunities to hear the Bible or do you look for opportunities to avoid hearing the Bible? When your name comes up on the monthly ministry schedule and you see you're not going to be in the service because you're serving somewhere else uh, in the nursery or somewhere else, are you pleased or are you disappointed? Are you adding opportunities to your life to hear from the scriptures or are you eliminating opportunities from your life to hear the scriptures? Diotrephes is unteachable. He will not acknowledge the apostle. He also refuses to welcome other believers. Remember, that's the issue. It's in verse 10, but that's the issue in this book. Gaius, you are an honorable, you're a commendable Christian because you are receiving these Christian teachers. You're showing them hospitality. You're sending them on a way that honors God. Diotrephes, though, uh-uh. You refuse them. Maybe Diotrephes is standing up in the church and, he's, and saying to the people there, you know, we just can't trust these people. We don't know where they come from or who they are. We've got to look out for false teachers. But these teachers are coming from John himself. You can be very, you can be un, unteachable in very subtle ways. Uh, maybe... Maybe there's just no one who understands your circumstances well enough to really help you, so you, you, you don't listen to them. Oh, no, sorry. You can't listen to them because there's no one who really understands your circumstances. Or maybe there's no counselors that you can find who, who know the Bible like you want them to, so of course you can't go, go uh, seek counsel from somebody because they don't know the Bible as well as, as you want them to. Or maybe you just... The people... There's just not as mature as you are, so um, you just can't listen. They're, they're not able to really speak to you in a way that really helps you. You can be unteachable in a very pious way. I mentioned those, those three examples or those three uh, ways that we push back because I've heard those thoughts run through my own mind. Again, a very pious way to refuse to listen to other people. When's the last time that someone spoke to you and what they said landed and it struck? It changed the way you think or the changed the way that you live. If it's been a long time, maybe it's not the problem with everybody around you who's speaking. Maybe the problem is you and you're unteachable. Now, second here, Diotrephes was unteachable. Second, he was uncharitable. He was uncharitable. Those who love to be number one cannot be uh, charitable, especially in their words. That's what John is talking about here, uh, in your words. Diotrephes, he says, spreads malicious nonsense. That's a good translation of the phrase, malicious nonsense. Um, he, those, that phrase describes the character of what Diotrephes is saying. It's hateful, it's malicious, and it describes the content of what he's saying. It's nonsense, it's, it's foolishness, it's silly, just plain wrong uh, words. If you want to be first, you have to eliminate the competition. You'll have to tear other people down. You'll have to poison their reputation. You cannot possibly risk saying something nice or encouraging about other people because they might get the praise or attention that you want. You have to be uncharitable. Now third, John says that Diotrephes is unaccountable. He was unaccountable. Those who love to be first are unaccountable. He is taking to himself authority that he does not have. 
He's stopping people from serving. It says that he, he refuses to welcome other believers in verse 10. He also stops those who want to do so and puts them out of the church. Now that word put out is, a, is an intense word. It's the same word in John 9. There were people who were afraid that if they acknowledged Jesus as Messiah that the Pharisees would put them out of the synagogue. Same word, throw them out of the synagogue. And Diotrephes is throwing people out of the church. But that's not the way that people come in or go out of the church. We should talk about this. It's important to us. So um, turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew 18. This is one of the passages that I'm pretty sure I couldn't write down. This long passage, it's familiar that I've, I've shared this with some of you before, but I, I want us to be clear again this morning about how, how is it that people come in and go out of the church? Because Diotrephes is claiming authority for himself he does not have. And I want to show that to you from the Bible. Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. This very familiar uh, passage. Matthew 18, 15. Look what the text says. Jesus is speaking. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their faults just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. So in this familiar passage, we have a conflict there's a conflict within a brother or sister's life. It's a conflict between what they say they believe about Jesus and how they are actually living. I believe this about Jesus, but here is my life, and the two don't match. Now, we should be clear. There's no member of Grace Baptist Church of Millersville whose life perfectly matches their confession of the Lord Jesus. We believe that the Lord Jesus has called us to holiness, to be conformed, to, uh, uh, to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, not to be conformed to this world. We're to be conformed to his image. We believe that. We say that we believe that. But, and, and nobody lives perfectly in alignment with our confession. But, but Matthew's talking about a specific case here. Jesus has in mind a, a contradiction between your confession and your life that is very public a conflict that's very public, or a conflict that's egregious. It's, just, it's, it's a horrible conflict. Or uh, a conflict that uh, doesn't bring grief to the person with whom the inconsistency is, is in that person. Uh, there, the, the, there's the profession of faith, and there's the life that conflicts with it in a, in a very public, in a very egregious, in a very, this is not, a, this is not good grammar, an unrepented of way. Um, so what, what do we do? So go talk to them. And if they don't listen, verse 16, if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Okay? If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. So here it is, the final authority. Who is the final authority in this scenario? The final authority is the church. And if a brother or sister refuses to listen to the church, the local assembly, then you are to treat them like an unbeliever. You're to put them out of the church. That's what he means, treat them like an unbeliever. That's what he means when he says, treat them like a pagan or a tax collector. They were the unbelievers par excellence in Jesus' day. So treat them, there's such a glaring consistency between your claim to follow Jesus and your actual life, uh, and we're going to believe your life and not your lips, because your lips are apparently lying, because your life is not lying. It is the church as a whole that has the power to do this. 
It's not the elders. It's not the pastor. It's the church. The church has the authority and the responsibility to determine who's in and who's out. That's how you get into our church. the, The church votes and welcomes you in. And you know how you get out of our church? The church votes and either gladly sadly, sadly dismisses you or uh, uh, sends you out because of this inconsistency. Uh, This is how the church protects its own witness and protects its own uh, proclamation of the gospel. Uh, In two weeks, our church is going to mark its 45th anniversary. So the first meeting of Grace Baptist Church in Millersville was on May 12, 1974. Now, Grace, this church, did not build this building. This building was actually erected by another congregation called Calvary Baptist Church. Calvary Baptist Church was a congregation that built this building in 1964. And it was a thriving church, Calvary Baptist Church was. They had uh, its own Awana program. I know that because I have talked to people about uh, that who worked in the Awana program in the late 60s here in this building. Uh, And then I also know about it because about 18 years ago, uh, we were cleaning out a closet downstairs and we found some dry rotted game uniforms that had used by the Awana clubbers. You can't throw out anything in a church. Don't ever do that. They were stored in a closet, but they, I did, I threw them away. Okay. So I know, I'm sorry. Calvary Baptist Church that used to meet here closed in 1973 and in part they closed due to uh, terrible leadership of its pastor. Uh, One day the pastor stood up one Sunday morning and he read a list of names of families that he demanded leave the church. And um, you know some of the people who, who left. Uh, they had to go and he wanted them to go right then and there. Judy McHugh was here that Sunday. She talks about this. You can ask her about it. Um, She was so mad. The McHughes were not on that list, which surprises me because if you want to get away with chicanery, you would think you'd have to get rid of the McHughes. But the McHughes were not on the list. The McHughes were not on the list. But Judy was so mad that she wanted to get up and walk out in solidarity with those who'd been kicked out. But she started to get her, grab her stuff and get her, and her mother grabbed her arm and pushed her back in the pulpit. This is Christ's church. You don't walk out of Christ's church. I'm not sure what I would have done if I was in Judy's shoes. I think if my mother told me to sit down, I would have sat down. That's probably what would have happened, right? No pastor, no elder has the authority to do this has the authority to do what Diotrephes is doing, but Diotrephes is taking that authority unto himself. He's unaccountable. Now notice, if if we go back to 3 John, John is not opposed to authority. He's not opposed to the godly use of authority. In fact, that's what he says in verse 10. He says, when I come, I will call attention to what he's doing. John says, I'm going to use my authority when I come to put Diotrephes, to announce what Diotrephes is doing because he, what he is doing is abusive authority. I'm going to use right authority to stop him. Um, Remember what authority is for. You can find examples all over the place of abusive authority. But remember what what David said about godly authority. Look at what 2 Samuel 23, 2 says. Uh, We read this every now and then. The spirit of the Lord spoke through me. His word was on my tongue. The God of Israel spoke. The rock of Israel said to me. That's a long introduction. Here's when one rules over people in righteousness... When he rules in the fear of God, 
He is like the light of morning at sunrise on a cloudless morning, like the brightness after rain that brings grass from the earth. This is good springtime images. Godly leadership, authority, is like the sun in the spring that brings the green to the grass and calls the leaves out on the trees and makes the flowers bloom. That's what godly authority is supposed to do. It's a source of blessing and warmth and delight. Did you enjoy that warm, beautiful weather we had this week? Then it was over. But uh, for those couple days of summer, it was really nice. That's what godly authority does. It just brings that life and warmth and beauty. It's what it's supposed to do. You can't express authority that way if you love to be first. Now we have to come back to that phrase and talk about this. Diatrophies loves to be first. It's a deadly description. It's terrible. That man, that woman, she loves to be first. Oof. Now think about this with me, about how contrary this is to our faith. John understands the temptation of this love to be first. He understands it. Remember this, that conversation he had with Jesus? I'm going to read it from Mark chapter 10. This is very familiar. Um, if you want to turn with me to Mark 10, you can follow along, but I'll read it to you. Mark 10:35. this conversation that Jesus had with John. Then James, Mark 10:35 says, Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. That's a bold thing to say. Jesus says, well, what do you want me to do for you? They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. Was that all? 38, you don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am with? I am baptized with? We can, they answered. No lack of confidence among these men. Jesus said to them, You will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. Those places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them? Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The one who wants to be truly great among you must be your servant. Jesus is not anti-authority here. He's talking about how you use the authority that God has entrusted to you. You use it to bless others, not to get your own way. You use it to demand that that people pursue what is best for them. That can be tricky at times. I understand that. uh, Sometimes you as authority have to treat those under your care how to respond to authority, which sounds an awful lot like self-serving, right? Self-serving talk. I'm your pastor. Let me tell you from the Bible how you should be treating a pastor. That's tricky. It's tricky. That's that's a call. Use the authority that God has entrusted uh, unto you to uh, demand that people pursue what is best for them. I understand this temptation. I understand this temptation. Where does it come from? It comes from pride. Who deserves to be at the front of the line in a kindergarten class? Every kid in that room, and they know it. 
right? I love, Diotrephes loves to be first. I love to be first. I love to be first in line. Don't you love to be first in line? It comes from pride. No one else is worthy to be first but me. It can sometimes, this love to be first can sometimes come from insecurity. If I'm in charge, I can protect myself and make sure that no one else hurts me or threatens me. My family makes fun of me, and rightfully so. We, uh, 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 we went uh, to watch last month Jenna and the Penn Manor Marching Band march in the Baltimore Parade. I didn't know anything about the Baltimore Parade. I've never been there to the St. Patrick's Day Parade, but I read about it online as much as I could, and I decided uh, I really didn't want to sit in a crowd or wade through crowds or be in, and crushed by crowds, so we went early. I mean early, early. We showed up. We sat on the side of the road, and the police came along and said, What are you doing here? <laughs> we were early. I love to be first because I didn't want to miss out. I love to be first because you're insecure. Uh, Chuck Swindoll described a man that he once met. I think it was at a pastor's conference. Listen how he, he describes this man. You got the distinct impression that when the two of you were together, the most important one was not you. Little mistakes irked him. Slight omissions irritated him. The, atti- the attitude of a servant was conspicuous by its absence. It was highly important to him that everyone knew who he was, where he'd been, how he'd done, and what he thought. While everyone else much preferred to be on a first-name basis rather than reverend or mister, he demanded, call me doctor. His voice had a professional tone. As humorous things occurred, he found no reason to smile. Listen to this. And as the group got closer and closer in spirit, he became increasingly more threatened. That's the love to be first of an insecure person. You understand this temptation. It feels safe to be in charge, to be first. It's comfortable. There's a little diatrophies, maybe a big diatrophies, in everybody in this room and downstairs too. It was all part of the allure of the temptation in the garden. God had told Adam and Eve not to eat from the tree, but the serpent told Eve that if she ate from the tree, she could be as powerful and influential, as as wise as God. You can be first too. Now the temptation to be first, I understand the temptation. You are looking for a place that is not meant for you when you love to be first. That's not where you belong There is one seat, one seat for the person who is to be first, and it is not yours, it is the Lord Jesus's. John MacArthur said, some people get so caught up in their own holiness that they look at the Trinity for a possible vacancy. Uh, So this morning in Sunday school, our classes studied Colossians 1, verse 18. He is the head of the body of the church, He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. The place of preeminence belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. By right of who he is, he's the fullness of God in the flesh, and what he has done, he has created the world, he has reconciled the world to himself through his own blood. He paid the price necessary to bring a hostile, alienated world home. I think of Hosea in the Old Testament. Hosea the prophet married at God's command a woman by the name of Gomer. She was unfaithful. She started a little bit here, adultery, out late one night, then away for a couple days. 
then she left him to live with her lover. She got to the point where her adultery was so grotesque that she was paying people, paying men to sleep with her. She destituted herself. She ended up on a slave block for sale. And Hosea the prophet at God's command, her rightful husband, the man she had despised and rejected, came and bought her back with his own money. And the Lord Jesus has bought us back with his own blood on the cross, bearing the consequences for our rebellion against God. He died and rose again as a sign that the payment had been fully accepted by God. He is the one who is worthy of all supremacy. When John writes that Diotrephes loves to be first, it would almost be laughable. It's almost laughable to think there's me somebody who deserves to be first. It's not laughable, though, because I think I deserve to be first, too. D.A. Carson talked about an interview he did several years ago with Kenneth Conser and Carl Henry. Now, those are two names that you might not recognize. They were titans in the 20th century. Kenneth Conser was the founding dean of Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. It's a fine seminary, one of the largest in the world, actually. And Carl Henry was a great friend of Billy Graham. He founded Christianity Today magazine. He wrote 40 books, very influential writer and thinker. And when they were in their 80s, they met for a conference... At, um, at Trinity Seminary, actually, and D.A. Carson interviewed him. Here was his last question that he asked, the last question Carson asked. Uh, it's a long question. Listen. A lot of old men become so cranky that they begin to destroy what they built up. Christian leaders who were movers and shakers in their youth, and then gradually they became protective, inward-looking. They begin to resent younger, more energetic, brighter minds that come along behind them. They build a castle around themselves and pull up the drawbridge. They begin to be more and more defensive, sometimes angry. They're no longer visionary. They can't see what they're doing. They become cranky and actually begin to destroy what they built. Now you two men, he said to them sitting on the stage, you two men have avoided that. You're still in your 80s outward looking. You're still constantly asking about the next stage. You're interested in a new generation coming along behind. I don't detect any resentments of the enfeeblement of age as just part of living in this death-cursed world. I don't hear that from you. I hear gratitude and maturity and an expectation of better things to come. How do you manage that, he said? Don't tell me, he said, that it's just the grace of God. I know it's the grace of God. But how did the grace of God work out in your life so that you're where you are now? He said, these two men, both godly men, they sat there and they sputtered for a little bit. And then Carl Henry looked at him and said, how can anybody be arrogant when he stands beside the cross? It's exactly right, isn't it? Don't follow men like Diotrephes because they're too far away from the cross. Now, quickly as we finish here, John writes about Demetrius, three endorsements for the man, the truth testifies to him, everybody knows him, John knows him, he's, he's got good references, uh, guys follow his example, Demetrius is probably bringing the letter, he wants guys to treat him well, and then John ends third John with these words that, that actually bring out this imitation concept even further, he, he says, I want to talk to you face to face, I want to talk to you face to face, if you want to imitate someone you have to know them really know them. And he refers to his followers as friends. That's unusual. See, usually in the Bible, we, uh, the Bible talks about us as brothers and sisters. We're family. The Bible usually doesn't talk about us 
fellow believers as friends. But I think he has John 15, 5 in mind when Jesus says, Now I call you friends. I'm sharing with you everything I know so that you can follow me. You're my friends. We know one another. Close enough so that we can learn from one another. We know each other up close personally by name. Follow this example. Don't follow diatrophies. This is how you build and protect a church. It's how you build and project, protect a church that stands close to the cross. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning, and I am grateful to you for the men and women in this congregation, the teenagers and children who are in this building. And I'm thankful to you for your work of grace in their lives that they have come this morning with great expectations, hopefulness to listen to your word, to hear what you have to say. And, and Lord, uh, you through the Apostle John have told us to imitate what is good and not what is evil. And you even gave us a great example, diatrophies. Lord, we confess to you, we love to be first. We love to be preeminent. We love to create contexts and cultures and settings and situations in which we're in control and, and we have dominance because it makes us feel safe and it makes us feel important and we like that. Lord, I pray you have done the work O Father, to make your Son, the Lord Jesus, preeminent. And I pray this morning that in all things in our church, in our homes, in our lives, that Christ would have the supremacy, that he would be preeminent. Turn us by your Spirit from our love to be first. Make us teachable and charitable Remind us of our accountability to one another. By these things, Lord, we pray that you would protect our church, that you would keep us close to the cross and the message of the good news of life in Jesus' name. We pray these things together as a family in the name of Jesus, saying, Amen.